another edition of the final whistle i'm your host gm gersh alongside me is my co-host kyle weinmeyer and we're excited for another week uh we're delayed a week oh, we're delayed a day here for this episode but we're getting it in now finally um i think we're gonna start with some baseball and this is kyle's uh this is kyle's mojo right here another another discussion of this uh this wonderful lockout that we uh do not enjoy so I'll let Kyle get us started on talking about the lockout. Thanks, George. Uh, hopefully, eventually we'll be done talking about the lockout <laughs> and we can actually talk about some real baseball. Yes. Because it feels like we're just kind of rehashing things. That change ever so slightly from week to week, but uh feel like they don't change at all. So a couple things happened in the past uh, eight days or so since we last recorded about baseball. Uh, last week, the MLBPA and the player, and the MLB met. Uh, the MLBPA had a couple concessions. Uh, last week, they dropped their proposal of 100% of the year 2-3 players reach arbitration. They dropped down to 80. Uh, right now, it's at about 22%. You might have heard those called Super 2s before uh, with guys like Chris Bryant or suppressing service time to make sure guys don't hit that. Uh, so there's a bit of a gap still there. Owners want to be at the same 22% players have come down to 80%. Uh, but what the MLPA has done is they raised their pre-arb pool back up to $115 million from $100 million due to uh, that money being having to cover 150-ish players now as opposed to the 30 that MLB wants, the 22%. So I guess that's an easier explanation of why there's such a big gap there. Is because MLB thinks they're only having to pay 30 players and the PA wants them to pay 100 plus. So you can see the difference between 115 million and 15 million. Uh, this was a bit of a big concession by the Players Association, dropping Association, from 100% of players down to 80% because the MLB has said they, they won't negotiate on three things. One is expanding arbitration eligibility. Two is revenue sharing between owners. And three is getting players back to free agency sooner. Now, it sounds like the players have kind of given up on the third one, uh, getting players to free agency sooner. I haven't heard much about revenue sharing between owners. I feel like they're probably not going to touch that much. But the third one is expanding arbitration eligibility. The players have come down to 80%. You know, the owners are still stuck at the 22%. Their hope is maybe they'll budge a little bit, but the players are still giving up some there. Uh, it wasn't much for last week. They just met for 15 minutes and kind of moved on with the plan So they're actually going to meet more often this week. The plan was hopefully to meet every day, but they're at least going to be meeting in person more often this week, which is good. Uh, to start, they met today on Monday. Sounds like they met for roughly three hours separately. The players associated with themselves, the owners with themselves, and they actually came together for a little while. Uh, what ended up happening there is the pre-R bonus from the owners went up to 20 million from 15. Now they still think they're only paying 30 players. So well, I think that's why you don't see a huge jump there. And then they also proposed that the lottery goes up to four picks from three for the draft. The players want top eight. The owners are up to four. So a little bit of a gap there. Sounds like on Tuesday, the Players Association will present their proposal back to the owners. And while there's not a ton of progress being made, 
I think the idea that they're physically meeting together is a good sign, I guess. I, what do you take from that? Yeah, I think it's uh it's a good I think it's a good sign. I mean you hope we get positive movement here in this middle to later part of the week or hopefully sooner, but definitely this middle later part of the week you want some more movement to actually happen where maybe one side's budging and the other side's budging and they're getting closer to meet in the middle for everything. Um but it just it's just positive in the sense of that they're meeting in person every day and some more, some new faces are also coming into the building on both sides to get all these people in the same building together. Sort of, you know, we're, some of these players are here, some of these players are there, or some of these owners are there, some of these owners are here. The fact that they're in person discussing one another, not over phone, not over Zoom, they're face-to-face, I think that helps a lot. For sure. It. I don't know if confusing is the right word, but I would love to see how meeting together for like three plus hours and at the end of the day, not much changes. I I would love to be a fly on the wall in some of these meetings because I think it's a good thing they're meeting together in person. I think that's probably better than meeting over the phone or over Zoom or whatever they might've been using. But at the same time, you know, it's not like they met overall together separately for like four or five hours today. And they came slightly closer together. I, I don't know. It, it just, I would love to see what those conversations look like. Because it feels like they should be closer. Maybe I'm wrong in thinking that. But it, it, I, I would just hope for more movement, I guess. That's how I see that. But like we said, they'll be meeting on Tuesday, hopefully. Uh, Players Association will, will be presenting them back to MLB. Hopefully, MLB presents the thing back. It sounds like they both want to get a deal done by February 28th, which is the deadline for uh, spring training and or for the regular season to start on time. So the fact that they both want to get a deal done, I think, is good. I just wish it hadn't taken three plus months to want to do that. Uh, one small announcement: This isn't something that will surprise anybody. But the first week or so of spring training was postponed. There will be no games earlier than March 5th. Again, we don't have a deal. That's not surprising. It was just officially announced by MLB this week. Any other thoughts on the MLB lockout figures? No, I think uh, we'll we'll see. Uh, I mean, I think both sides have to budge a little bit. But I definitely think one's going to have to budge more than the other. And we'll definitely see which one that is here in this middle to the end. Because I think they both they both want this to be settled by the 28th or before the 28th. And uh, I don't see them going past that date to try to negotiate. They want to get it done. So someone's going to have to budge. And one's going to have to budge more than the other. So it's going to be exciting and a good thing in a good way or maybe a bad way to see who that is. For sure. Like we said, we're just happy they're meeting in person. Hopefully that uh, gets us closer to actual baseball. And we can have fun discussions instead of just legalistic, long ranting money talks, which can probably be hard to follow. Uh, Moving on, it was a, I don't know, big week in the NBA. That's how I would phrase it. It's a fun week, I should say. 
in the NBA. We had the NBA All-Star Weekend, which is, I think the NBA does one of the best jobs of all the pro sports in putting on a show. Uh, we had the Rising Stars game on Friday, along with the Celebrity game. Then on Saturday, we had the Skills Challenge. We had the three-point contest. We had the slam dunk contest. Uh, we also had the clutch challenge, which was new this year, which was kind of fun. Uh, then on Sunday, we had the All-Star game. Along with that, the halftime All-Star game, there's a ceremony to honor the top 75 players in basketball. Which I think it's really cool, and it's really cool to see uh, all the players talk about how impactful that was to them. I know Charles Barkley, even on the halftime show, was really like broken down about it, saying how special it was for him. LeBron James talk about it a little bit, how it's so special to him. And it's really cool to see. I know we often fight about errors a lot between like, oh, who's better here and here. But it's really cool to see today's generation be able to hang out and meet and just really respect the generations that came before them. Now, some of this the results of these, I'm just going over the results of all these events quick, and we can talk about them a little bit. Uh, on Friday, we had the Rising Stars game. Uh, Team Barry won that. It's a new format that they have where there's, 50, uh, there's four teams. And the first round, the two teams played 250. And then uh, the four teams were divided into two games. They played till 50. And then those two teams played in the championship to 25, and there was a winner. Kind of different playing to a point instead of just playing. But Team Rick Barry ended up winning. Uh, Cade Cunningham was the MVP of that team. So it was kind of fun to see the young guys get out there and play. Uh, then going to Saturday, I think the clutch challenge is on Saturday. But I'll cover that one first in case it was Friday. Uh, the clutch challenge was won by Terry Halburn's team, right? Yes, I believe so. Yes. Yeah, it was Terry Halburton, and I should probably know this one. Uh, let me see. Do, 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 do. Yeah, but I was talking about something funny I thought would happen in, in that thing because Halliburton won it. But there was a really, really funny moment that I really enjoyed during that sequence was uh, so the clutch challenge essentially is you make five shots from five different parts of the floor to symbolize clutch uh, moments from the past, so to speak. Now, the five shots were right in front of the hoop, about six feet away. Magic Johnson's baby sky hook, the 1987 finals. Uh, Charles Barkley's series ender in the 1993 playoffs. Uh, Reggie Miller's game winner in the 1998 playoffs. Ray Allen's three-pointer from the corner of the 2013 finals. And then Damian Lillard's series ender in 2019 when he kind of walked off the uh, thunder. Now, my, my favorite part of that was Scotty Barnes and Tyrese Maxey. So, when I say 
Magic Johnson's baby skyhook. It's literally like six feet in front of the hoop. This is an easy shot. I think every other team made it on their first try, except for Scotty Barnes and Tyrese Maxey show, or uh, team. Now, the rules are you have to alternate shots. So it has to go one, then the other, one, then the other, one, then the other, which makes the rebounding part of it a little interesting. And I've seen different strategies used here uh, to where somebody wants a pass to shoot, to somebody wants to grab the ball themselves and go shoot. And so what happened here was Scotty Barnes missed four consecutive shots from six feet away, which was pretty funny. Uh, Kind of concerning. No defense. Yeah, yeah, no defense, just <laughs> literally right in front uh, of the hoop. And then the funny part was Tyrese Maxey had shot one in the corner and shot a couple other shots because uh, Barnes just rebounded his miss and then passed it out to him. And then Tyrese Maxey tried two shots from six feet away, and he missed both of them. So it's just funny to see an NBA players go over six from like six feet away from the hoop with no defense. Uh, when there was an easy shot for else. And then back to it, the winners were Tyrese Halliburton and then Desmond Bain was his teammate. I forgot about Gersh's Grizzlies. That's my bad. The winning team was funny because Halliburton made four of the five shots because Bain couldn't hit anything. And then Desmond Bain hit the long Damian Lillard shot on his first try. So kind of fun. That was a new wrinkle to the All-Star festivities this year. It was unique. Yeah, it was different. Uh, it was fast. I think they won it in like 39 seconds. So as you can imagine, this takes like less than a minute to do. So it's boom, 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 and done. Uh, some of the events on Saturday, the three-point contest, which is might be the more exciting of the two now, which yes. I think says something. Uh, the three-point contest was won by a big man. That was Carl Anthony Towns. I believe he was the biggest underdog Yes. Uh, coming into the competition. Probably which, him and Desmond Bain. Yeah, which makes some sense. You know, he's a big guy. I, I don't think people realize he's actually a 40% three-point shooter for his career. When they and, talk about good shooting big man and people talk about guys like Embiid and stuff, like it really should be Cat. Yes. And here's a reminder that uh, Coach Cal at Kentucky will not let him shoot a three in college. Same with Anthony Davis. Poor yeah, guy. I, <laughs> I don't know how true these rumors are, but uh, some rumors I heard coming out was that Coach Cal called Towns the best shooter on that team. Which, <laughs> he probably did. Which was, a, was interesting because Devin Booker was on that team. Devin Booker struggled in college from shooting the three. Yeah, but so I'll tell you a little bit about how talented he had this yes. big man. Which he... I think it gets lost how talented Towns is sometimes because he plays in Minnesota. But over his also career, he has made the also team multiple times, but he's also now won the three-point contest and he's won the skills contest. He's, so, just, got, he's just got one left. Yeah. So from, from a big man standpoint, those are probably two of the harder ones to win. I think that's pretty okay. incredible. Uh, onto the other two challenges. The skills challenge this year was changed from individuals to teams. Which is interesting. We have some interesting teams like uh, the winning team ended up being a all Cleveland team to be guys from Cleveland, which is cool to see. 
putting like another team as the all the other Kumbo brothers. Which yes. I don't know, interesting, I guess. It's Giannis and then two guys that rarely play, if ever. <laughs> but fun nevertheless. So that's different. And then the capper to all that was the slam dunk contest, which was pretty incredible. Yeah, the, the slam dunk contest at this point is kind of a joke. Uh, I, I don't know if it's just because we have seen all the dunks these guys can do, or if it's because we're getting like C-list dunkers in these game or in these competitions. Now, what are your thoughts on the slam dunk contest? Where where it's at now? Yeah, the slam dunk contest thinks in a. Yeah, I mean, it's never going to go away. I don't think it will ever go away. I just think it's in a tough spot where the the right players don't participate anymore. Um, and I mean, there's nothing against those right those players that don't participate in it. I mean, I mean, it's a big stage. I mean, even if it's just you're just having four guys out there to do the contest, it's a big stage. But um, I think it's because you don't have the you know, a LeBron James in the contest or, you know, like, you know, just 10 years ago, the Dwight Howard, Derek Rose, Nate Robinson, some people like that, you know, that did put on a heck of a show. I think, you know, or even if you think back to the, well, a lot of people think it's the greatest dunk contest of all time with Aaron Gordon and Zach Levine, you know, even if you can have two, two solid ones, it will create a good show. And I think that's kind of where you're missing. Uh, you're missing your, your your stars of the league being in the contest. Where now some of these lower level guys might be great dunkers, but most people doesn't care that uh, this G League player can do a 720 in the air, do a backflip, and dunk it <laughs> because sure. they don't know who he is. I mean, it, 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 I, and it's nothing against the player. It should. It's nothing against the player. It's just if LeBron James did that, we'd be talking about it all night. So I think that's part of it. Um, I definitely, uh, it was said during uh, the All-Star game, Reggie Miller was interviewing John Moran because John Moran had some cool dunks, some pretty big dunks in the All-Star game. Uh, asked John if he would please do the dunk contest next year. And uh, he is definitely interested. So there, that would be a, a, a great start to next year's if he – wants to if that if that will get y'all to do it i mean that that would be a great star to highlight your dunk contest next year you just got to get the big stars back into participating or at least get two get two if you're gonna have a four-man crew at least get two guys that you know will put on a show in the finale yeah like you said no disrespect to the players that are in it but i don't think many people outside of the hardcore basketball fans know Correct. who uh, Juan Toscano Anderson is. <laughs> uh, even like Cole Anthony might be a little unknown to people because he plays in Orlando. And I mean, especially if you don't even follow college basketball. I mean, because I mean, Cole Anthony's kind of fell under the radar since he's been in the NBA. Yeah, Obi Toppin too. Oh yeah, it. correct. He, he was a huge college basketball player at Dayton, but he's been kind of underwhelming for the Knicks. Uh, so I guess maybe the biggest player that would have been Jalen Green, who was a top two pick in the last year's draft, but he's kind of struggled a little bit this year. So not really an inspiring crowd there. Uh, Three-point contest is always fun. I always enjoy that, seeing how well people can shoot from distance, especially when, selfishly, a guy from Minnesota wins, especially a big guy like Towns, who I I love. Uh, 
he's incredible, and I'm glad he's finally getting some spotlight put on him. Uh, yeah, I thought the clutch challenge response, I thought the skills challenge was always interesting. Any thoughts on those? Three-point contest, the skills challenge. No, the skills, so. challenge, the skills challenge has always been great, and I like that they keep creating new concepts for it like you know they did the teams that's that's different i mean i do like the solo ones because it's nice to see them like they did solo ones before and classify put the bigs together put the guards together so uh there's always going to be a unique combination and adam silver and his team's always uh, coming up with great new ideas that's part of why the nba uh, does so well in their all-star weekends because they're so innovative more so than i think the other leagues uh, when it comes to things like this for sure. The innovation in the NBA, I think, is top notch, especially compared to the other leagues. Which, speaking of which, that brings me to the actual All Star game. I-, I love the new format. I think it's really cool. Yes. Especially what they do. As the first three quarters are just played, uh, it's whatever, whatever score doesn't matter. And whoever wins each quarter, that team wins money towards charity. It's always it- cool to see the NBA give back. Mm-hmm. And then. The fourth quarter, what happens is you take the cumulative score of the first three quarters, whoever had the highest, you add 24 to it, which is Kobe Bryant's number, and that's the, quote, targeted score. I think it's called the Elam ending. Yes. Where you play to a targeted score. And it makes it pretty competitive in the fourth quarter. It was fun to see them kind of bear down and play. Would it be nice to see... You know, a 48-minute game of NBA players, all-stars, trying as hard as they can. Yes, but you're never going to get that. It's always, first three quarters is always going to be a show. A lot of dunks, three-pointers, fancy plays. Because it's not worth it for these guys to possibly get hurt in an exhibition game. But I thought that was really cool, how it ended like that. And then being in Cleveland, it was really cool to see LeBron James hit the game-winning shot at the end which Team LeBron is now 5-0 and all-time. Yeah, you apparently, you want to be on, apparently you want to be on Team LeBron. He yeah, is 5-0. He's, he's a good all-star game GM. <laughs> uh, don't know so much about uh, actual NBA GM with some of the moves he's advocated for, but he's really good in the all-star game, so give him credit for that. The MVP of the all-star game was Steph Curry. He... It's widely regarded as the best shooter of all time, but he still just makes me laugh and shake my head. Uh, some of the stuff he does. I think he made 16 threes in the game. There's multiple shots from like five to ten feet beyond the arc, which is just crazy. My favorite one was Steph took a three from the corner, and he turned around after he released it and then asked the crowd if it went in. And then, yes. of course, it did. Of course, it's kind did. of funny. Yeah. I thought that was pretty funny. Yeah, he scored 50 points, won the MVP. He had a he had a heck of a night. I mean, he tried he tried to break that record, which was AD's, uh, which is 50. Anthony Davis is 52 from 2017. Um, he missed his last seven shots of the of the game, uh, but those last seven shots were contested. <laughs> hey, that's when the defense was being played. That last quarter. That last those last few possessions and he he missed some he missed some tough looks. Yeah, which probably unfair to him that we expect him to make those. Yes. But, <laughs> you know, here we are. Uh, 
moving on, another story in the NBA was a player that wasn't at the NBA All Star Weekend because he was sick. That would be uh, Donovan Mitchell. There's been a recent uh, rumor coming out of who's the next big star to move. And some of the three big names that they brought up, I saw, were Damian Lillard, Donovan Mitchell, and then Zion Williamson. Which, after the last year, has kind of been McCollum, Ben Simmons, James Harden, those kind of guys. Now that those kind of cleared out, these are kind of the new big names for a the new big possibly. three. Yeah. <laughs> so it's going to be interesting to see if any of these guys are actually traded. Maybe not soon, but just eventually. Is there one that you would prefer out of this group, or do you think they're all guys people should be wanting to acquire? Um, they're all guys people should be wanting to acquire, no doubt. Um, I think Dame is still the less likely to seeing what the the Trailblazers look. What they got, they got a plan now, and they really got a good good look going forward to try to build around him, which is nice to see. Um. Uh, let me go to Zion before, before we go to Donovan. Zion, uh, you just got to get him healthy um, first on the floor. I don't know if his future's in New Orleans. I mean, he's been uncomfortable there since they drafted him, and I, I think that's been clear to this day. I mean, they they got a solid team. I mean, even now they have acquired C.J. McCollum, and they have Brandon Ingram, who is still undervalued in this league for what he's went through and what he's made – what he's made to be now. Um, so I would hope he stays in new Orleans because um, for those fans and what they've kind of, what they've kind of been through, but that's also a team that also more in an ownership sake, that could be a team on the move as a franchise as in terms of relocation. Um, so there's a lot of question marks in new Orleans. I think first though, you got to get Zion healthy. You got to get Zion um, and the right mindset for himself going forward. Uh, because um, he doesn't look good, to be quite honest. But also, it seems like when he's about, when you hear about his rehab stories, it seems like when he's about to get healthy, something else breaks or something else happens. So, uh, hopefully, he has a strong offseason and he gets back there on the floor. It's It looks incredibly hard to me to see him to be moved, but more likely than Damian Lillard. So, that makes me to um, my third superstar, because I think they're all superstars. Um, and that's, uh, Donovan Mitchell. And I love where Donovan Mitchell is. I think, uh, Utah is an underrated franchise always has been, uh, they take care of everyone really well. Great fans. Uh, Dwayne Wade's an, an owner now with that ownership group, uh, lives in Salt Lake city outside of his Miami, Miami and Chicago's, uh, Chicago homes. Um, but Donovan Mitchell is in a unique situation I think with the jazz personally because um he does um have his contract extension I believe now but um the jazz uh, need to do a better job of keeping him happy and I think they they kind of burned some bridges with that when they extended Rudy Gobert because I think I think the relationship has been rehashed and they're fine now with, you know, with everything that happened way back with Rudy. But I still think when the, all that stuff happened with Rudy Gobert, 
Donovan thought, okay, since all this has happened, even though he is a defensive player of the year, two-time defensive player of the year, that we'll move on from him and we'll give me another piece to play with. Because really, Donovan Mitchell is a force at the rim. Not Donovan Mitchell, sorry. Rudy Gobert is a force at the rim, great defender, and he's great. But is he's really not what today's NBA. He's not not today's NBA big man. So I think when all that stuff happened with Rudy, they were hope. I think Donovan was hoping they wouldn't extend him and they would let him walk and they would acquire a different star to play alongside Donovan. And they didn't. They extended Rudy and he's just kind of in a stock corner. I mean, they're very they're a very good team. They're a deep, uh, a deep depth squad. But I think he was hoping that that would give them a chance to bring a different star in with him alongside him, and they didn't. And I think he's kind of growing unhappy. And I think the trail, not the trailblazers, the jazz know that, but if the jazz, I, this is the jazz off season uh, to capitalize on making Donovan Mitchell very happy because I don't, if, if they do not, I think they will, they will lose him and he'll be the more, the most likely out of the three to get moved because he'll fr- express his frustration, even though he's winning. But I think he needs to be surrounded by the right people, and I don't think he thinks Rudy Gobert can get him a championship, which I don't believe he can either. I think he needs a different – if you look at all the duos out there, I mean, what we have in the NBA right now is a bunch of duos, really. Um, I don't think Rudy Gobert gets him that championship. And you might might think otherwise, uh, Kyle, but I think he needs a different star around him, and I don't know who that star might be, really. But I don't think Rudy Gobert is the answer. And if he was, if Donovan Mitchell does go on that block, um, definitely you're going to see some big teams jump out on you uh, and have interest. That's probably more than likely the Knicks will be a big one. Uh, the Lakers will be involved for sure. Um, so there's there will be some interesting teams involved. But what are your thoughts on uh, what star you think would be moved out of, the, of these three? And if you know if you think Donovan Mitchell's the right move with uh, Rudy Gobert, or do you think along my thinking? Yeah, it's a fascinating situation, especially a market like Utah. I don't think you granted they have Carl Malone and John Stockton, but they're not like a super popular free agent destination. No, they're just kind of so, they're just kind of yeah. there, but it's a nice city. It's a nice town. It just yeah, not, everyone dreams of oh yeah, I want to go play in Salt Lake City. Exactly. So the fact that they have two really good players, I think, is a luxury for them. And the the Rudy Gobert thing is interesting to me because I think a lot of people think how you do in the line of you can't win a championship with him, how he's not the right pairing for Mitchell. And I, I, I think he's fascinating because, like you talked about, he's kind of a weird big man to his NBA. He doesn't shoot. Uh, he basically just plays defense, grabs boards, and sits in the paint. But I think it's different when you do that to an elite level. Because you can't tell me what he does doesn't matter when he's a three-time defensive player of the year. That Clearly, that's the NBA saying, yes, that does matter. He's a three-time defensive player of the year, four-time All-NBA, five-time All-Defensive team. So even if it, quote, doesn't fit in today's era, the fact that he's doing it at such a high level is being rewarded more so than, like, a wing defender or something along those lines. Now, maybe he's not the guy to pair with Mitchell because uh, I think people have taken a little bit of advantage of Gobert in the playoffs. We've seen in the past couple of years being able to drop him away from the basket, things like that. Mm-hmm. 
I would almost argue that it's more so uh, Utah supporting cast than it is specifically Gobert. I think I wouldn't be surprised if, if Gobert could help a team to a championship. I, I don't think he's going to single-handedly lead the team to an offensive championship. I think defensively he can certainly anchor an uh, NBA championship caliber defense on that end of the floor. But, yeah, I think Donovan Mitchell is probably the most likely to be moved there out of the three simply because I think Damian Lillard, by all indications, wants to remain in Portland. I agree. He's had plenty of chances to request a trade, try to opt out, everything, uh, all that kind of stuff. I mean, he hasn't, he's still there. It sounds like he still wants to be there. And with all these trades we've talked about in the past week, it sounds like the Trailblazers are trying to reach all their offense, another offense, just the team around Damian Lillard. So hopefully that gets him to stay. Then the third one, Zion, I, I just don't think there's a market for him right now. He can't stay healthy. He, he's another player that fascinates me because he's the first player that, at least for me, that I can remember who had all those highlight mixtapes and then actually made it to the NBA. You always see like all these highlights of like high school, like, oh, this guy's so good, blah, 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 blah. And then they just kind of disappear. For me, Zion was the first guy who I saw doing all these fancy windmills, and then he actually went to Duke, and then was actually a top pick, which is cool to see. But the question for him, I think it's always been, how dedicated is he to actually winning in the NBA? He doesn't seem to really care that much. He's just kind of there. He's out of shape. I think you have to work on all that before you can even consider trading him. Even if you're the Pelicans and think, he's not the fit long-term for that franchise. I, I don't think that there's much trade value there for him. I, I think you'd have to recoup that trade value somewhere or somehow. And so for him, the biggest thing is just getting on the floor, staying healthy for at least a little bit. So out of those three, I think Mitchell is the biggest star that would possibly be traded. I just, personally think that would be a mistake for the Jazz. Because like I said, you, you're locked into Rudy Gobert long-term. Uh, so if you don't think Rudy Gobert can win a championship, then I guess it doesn't even matter who you pair him with. But I, I don't know if you're going to bring back a talent as good as Donovan Mitchell. Which, Correct. Again, for Utah, they're not going to be bringing in top-level free agents. They need to build through the draft. You're not going to get a Donovan Mitchell again very often. So I would personally try to keep Mitchell and build around him. Uh, hopefully a better supporting cast and try to win with a Donovan Mitchell, Rudy Gobert, and hopefully a third biggish star. But yeah, that's where I sit there. I think it's fascinating because the NBA is the one thing that does move a lot of big stars and the stars have a lot of power. So if any of these guys want to be traded, I think they would be. And I guess Zion probably wants to be. So it's not like he doesn't really enjoy New Orleans. I just don't think there's any market there for him. I shouldn't say no market because there's going to be a market for Zion Williamson. If he were to be traded this offseason, there were teams that would call. But I don't think it's enough for New Orleans to say, yeah, we actually need to get rid of him just because of how injured he's been. I agree. 
I think, okay, I think um, they could win a championship with Rudy Gobert. They, okay, they are, very, they are a very similar team to someone in the West to me that's missing that piece in the West. So they remind me a lot of the Suns, but they're not as deep as the Suns, but also they don't have that point guard. So you have, like, in the Suns have Booker and Aiden. Aiden Aiden's kind of like Gobert, but a little bit more elite in terms. He's great. He's gotten a lot better defensively. He's a great rebounder, and he scores at the rim. Um, Booker is Donovan Mitchell, basically. I mean, that's your two. But in Utah, the one the, at the one is where they're kind of missing – they haven't been very healthy, and they're not a deep team. But at the one is probably where they could acquire the most someone to help uh, to help Mitchell in the backcourt. Is probably what they need. And the problem is they need somebody like Drew Holiday. And then they wouldn't get Drew Holiday, obviously. But they need someone like that that can help push, like what helped push Giannis and Middleton to the next level. That's what they need. Yeah, I think their hope was that Mike Conley could be that guy. And, and yeah, and he's just—he's too old, and I think he's regressed so much. He's—he's he's already in his decline. That maybe if you traded for Mike Conley three years prior, we would be talking a little bit differently. Yeah, like Mike Conley is not a bad NBA player by any means. No, but he's thirty-four, and yeah. at some point, especially for a point guard, unless you're Chris Paul, those skills kind of decline, and you get slower. And it's just tougher. So, I don't know what they could do with that roster, per se. But, yeah, like you said, they're like the Suns. They're just missing that third big piece. So, who knows what that piece will be or if they'll even acquire something. But, yeah, I think Mitchell's most likely to be traded, but I also don't think the Jazz should, even if he wants – unless he forces it. Yeah, If he forces his way out, then they don't really have much of a choice that point moving on to our next topic we're going to talk a little bit about the nfl there's not too much to talk about since we are in the middle of the offseason but there's a couple things we just wanted to briefly touch over now that the super bowl is over there was a an interesting uh hire this week in the nfl Uh, brian flores was hired by the Pittsburgh Steelers as a defensive assistant, which is interesting because Brian Flores is currently suing the NFL for discrimination. It's interesting. Uh, so to speak, you don't really see a guy suing an organization and being hired back by them. But if it was going to be any team, I'm not surprised it's Pittsburgh. Yes. They're the reason we had the Rooney rule. Uh, their head coach is Mike Tomlin. He's one of the few black coaches in the NFL. So that doesn't surprise me that they would be the one team to, quote, take a chance on Brian Flores. Because from all indications, he's a good coach. And Miami seemed to play well under him. It just didn't work out there, I guess. Uh, So, yeah, that was the big head coach. Or not head coaching hire. That was a, I would say, rather interesting Interesting, I kind of out of the blue news, like, because I think a lot of people just assume once he didn't get a head coaching job, okay, he's just going to sue the NFL and he's not going to go in a different role. He wanted it. It would have been fun. I think it would have been a lot uh, more exciting if he got a head coaching job and was suing the NFL. I mean, it's still exciting that he got a head coach and a coaching job 
end of suing the NFL, but I think it would have been more exciting if he was a head coach and suing the NFL. For sure. Uh, so we'll see how that plays out. Hopefully he has a successful year and we'll see where the lawsuit there goes, if anything comes of it. But we're going to look forward a little bit on the NFL. Now that the season over, the Rams are your Super Bowl champions. Who would you say for next year? Like, just obviously, a long ways to go, all of agency, all of the draft. Who would you say are some potential favorites for next year, now that this year is over? I, w- I would say uh, the Bills. I mean, they're good. Um, the Buffalo Bills is definitely one I would say would be up the top. Um, I think the Bengals got a good chance to be right back there. They just got to build the O-line. Um, and my other one, th- those are the two teams I'll mention, obviously. Um, then the other one is a team in the AFC West, and that's – I think the Chargers could surprise a lot of people. I think they did this year, but I think they could take another step next year. I don't think people realize – I think people are starting to realize – but still your little outsiders or your casuals aren't realizing how good Justin Herbert is. And I think people even forgot how good he was once he got in the draft because he stayed that extra year at Oregon and then he really didn't have a good year. And people were like, man, is he not good? Is he, is he not the quarterback we thought he could be? And he's exactly what everyone thought he should be, could be. And he's a great quarterback. Yeah, I think this is an interesting question this early in the offseason because I think the question is going to be defined on where quarterbacks end up. For instance, as long as Aaron Rodgers is in Green Bay, they're always going to be a Super Bowl favorite. Whereas if he's traded to Denver, then I think Denver jumps up there, but that that'll, would also decrease the chances for a Chiefs for a Chargers, for teams like that. And then same thing with like Russell Wilson possibly being traded. How does that affect the NFC West or the prospective division he gets traded to? I think it'd be a mistake not to mention the Rams who just won it. Uh, they won't bring back Von Miller, most likely. He had two sacks in Super Bowl, so he was a big part of that. They most likely won't bring back OBJ towards ACL in the Super Bowl. But one kind of sneak piece that they are bringing back would be Robert Woods. Yes. People kind of forgot about him because they had OBJ, but he tore his ACL earlier in the in the year. And they'll get him back. Sounds like Aaron Donald's coming back. Uh, sounds like Sean McVay is coming back. And with that, I, I trust that team. Matthew Stafford's coming back. I think they're good enough to repeat, obviously repeating is hard. But I think they're definitely a team that should be up there. The NFC East doesn't really have anybody that I consider Super Bowl favorites. NFC North is really only Green Bay if Rodgers comes back. I think they're right up there. The NFC South, I don't think with Tom Brady gone, they really have anybody. Buccaneers aren't that, won't be that formidable unless they get a QB, which again, if they get like an Aaron Rodgers, then they're right back up there. But as of right now, they don't. Uh, and the AFC, I don't know if the AFC North has any favorites. I 
the Bengals have to reach for the offensive line. Yes. And I know they got to the Super Bowl, and I know they came close to winning it, but I don't think that's a reputable result with how bad their offensive line was. They kind of had to go full Chiefs on that and completely retool there. If they can do that, then maybe. But I think they also have a really tough division. Yes. I, they do. I wouldn't be surprised at all if, you know, Cincinnati finished third or fourth in that division next year, just because the Steelers are never bad. And they're probably a, a, a good place for a, a, either a young QB or a star to get traded to. The Browns have really good defense. Their offense is kind of in flux now. And then the Ravens are always good. And I think Lamar Jackson's highly underrated. And so if they can actually get healthy next year, I think they're a chance, they have a chance to win that division again. So that's going to be tough for the Bengals to come out of that division. Uh, I think the Bills could be a heavy favorite just because of the division they play in. I don't think there's... Because the biggest thing for me is the ability to get to the playoffs. Because uh, obviously you can't win the Super Bowl without that. And so I think the Bills with their division are almost guaranteed to make the playoffs. Obviously nothing's guaranteed. But I think they're heavy favorites to make the playoffs of the division, which gives them a leg up in being Super Bowl favorites. Uh, I agree. And it, and it can be a lot tougher, too, if the Bills – I mean, not tougher for the Bills, but tougher for other teams because the Bills probably have what I, you would probably consider the easiest path also to the one seed. And if that ran through Buffalo, that would be great for them because of the weather later in the year. Yep. Yeah, you definitely wouldn't want – to play in Buffalo in the middle of January when it's like 15 degrees and snowing. Correct. So, I think they're a heavy favorite. I think the Chiefs have to be, as long as you have Mahomes, I think you have to be in that consideration. I think the Chargers should be good, but I've been saying that about the Chargers for years. <laughs> uh, all the way back to the Phillip Rivers days, if they're better than their record is, and then their record is what it is. So they're a team where as much as I love Herbert, he, they still have to get there before I can actually truly believe in them, which I think is unfair to him, but that's just kind of where I sit there. But yeah, I guess my, my favorites would be Rams, Chiefs, Bills, kind of those three. I think, at least for me, there's a bit of a drop-off after that into kind of a secondary group of teams. Maybe the Teams like the Packers, Ravens, Bengals, kind of that segment of teams. I don't know if that's fair or not. But no, I would, I would, I would agree pretty much that line aside, depending on how much the Rams get back and what they add. Yeah, I, I don't want to have too many Super Bowl favorites because at that point they're not favorites. We're just listing teams in the NFL. <laughs> you don't so. think the Bears had the best chance? Well, they do have Justin Fields from the Ohio State University. The Ohio State University. So maybe. You never know. Uh, I do want to touch one more thing before we move on from the NFL. Um, Because there was a rumor that came out two days ago that just blew my mind. Um, I really don't know what they're doing if they do this, okay? And I want your thoughts on it. So what what do you think about the the rumor that the Packers are sh- are are sh- um, shopping Jordan Love, that just blows my mind. Like you have, if you're shopping Jordan Love, do you only do it if Aaron Rodgers is coming back? 
But do you even do it if Aaron Rodgers is coming back is my big question. Like, why would you even do it to begin with? Why even take him a couple years ago in the first round only to move him? Yeah, that move confuses me. I I don't think Jordan Love is viewed as one of those super top prospects. Obviously a good prospect. He went in the first Mm. round. But he wasn't thought of in like the – Andrew Luck here of we have to have him. And so the fact that he sat for a couple of years, I just I don't think he would bring back as much as the Packers would want. Uh-huh. So yeah. That's it's that's just mind boggling. Yeah, because the Packers are kind of in salary cap hell too. And considering Jordan Love doesn't make all that much, that's not gonna help getting rid of his salary. And so you're not really going to bring back a ton of salary with that deal either. So, yeah, that that's confusing to me. But we'll see how that Packer team changes from now to the start of the year. Aaron Rodgers, Jordan Love, there's a lot of a lot that could change there in that QB room and then overall for that team. Same with Devonta Adams. Yes. He's a free agent. So, you know, we could be talking in September of next year that the Packers are the favorite to finish fourth in that division, depending upon <laughs> – Who's at QB? Correct. Because I don't think the rest of the team is – they're not bad, per se. But I think Aaron Rodgers can mask a lot of the flaws. Yes, I agree 100% with that take. 100%. So. Always fun talking to the NFL. Even if it's the offseason, we can probably find a little bit to talk about here and there. Because the NFL is a year-round league. And the drama never stops. Moving on to our next topic, though, talking about some drama. Uh, how about Joan Howard this weekend? The Michigan-Wisconsin game got a little heated at the end. Uh, Wisconsin was up pretty big. Uh, the thing was, Michigan was still pressing them at the end of the game. So Wisconsin called a timeout at the end, which Joan Howard thought was kind of bushly, calling a timeout so late in the game. Doesn't really make a difference then they got in the handshake line and when Greg Gard the Wisconsin head coach and John Howard got to each other they kind of like they both put your hands on their hands on each other which isn't okay and then it looked like there's some words they got separated a little bit and then John Howard tried to like throw a punch or swing at him and the players got involved there's a Wisconsin coach doing a, a DX chop sign back towards the Michigan bench, which was confusing. Um, it, it was just not a pretty sight for college basketball. It was not a good example for the students, which I think for the most part, I think I saw today a couple students or a couple of the players from Michigan got suspended. But for the most part, considering how the coaches acted, I'm surprised how well behaved the players were. Because typically they, they take after their head coach. And to the fact that the head coaches were yelling and not at all helping the situation. That, that was interesting. What, what's your take on the situation? Yeah, it's a tricky situation. Um, like you said, uh, for one, they were down, what, 14 or 12. Uh, Juwan Howard was still pressing. I don't know why he's still pressing. And that's a different story for another day. But I, I don't know why he was still pressing. Uh, the subs were in for Wisconsin. Two starters were still on the floor for Michigan. 
um, they, there was like a deflection or something that happened in the backcourt and Greg Gard called a timeout when the count uh, for the 10 second violation was at eight. They eventually, once they threw the ball in, as soon as they threw the ball in, they fouled him because uh, Michigan's coach, Juan Howard, was frustrated with the timeout. So he, he fouled them immediately. Instead of probably, he probably would have got the 10 second call, honestly. Uh, but what happened afterwards in the handshake line is cannot happen. It cannot happen. I mean, it shouldn't happen at the NBA level. It shouldn't happen at the college level, especially shouldn't happen at the college level. And it's for, it's, it for sure should not happen at the high school level. So when you see them going through the line, when Greg Gard meets Jawan Howard, I think it was discovered that Jawan Howard said, I'll remember that to Greg Gard. And Greg Gard stepped back in front of him, which is the Wisconsin head coach, stood, took a step back and stood, uh, took a step forward to the side, got in front of him and started to explain why he called the timeout when he did. Jawan Howard did not want to hear the explanation. And that's when they all kind of got scuffled together. We really don't know what was said after that. And then, then Jawan Howard threw the punch and all, everything just broke loose. But then, you know, then what Juwan Howard did in the post game and what he said in the post game conference that, you know, I'm not apologizing basically, but it's not this is not my fault. You know, they kind of not he's basically implied that they kind of deserved the scuffle that happened and they didn't. This shouldn't be happening. Uh and Juwan Howard of all people, I mean if anybody knows better and not someone I expect to be in acting in this manner, it would probably be Jawan Howard because of how much respect he has around college basketball and how much respect he has around the NBA as well. So it's kind of odd that all this, how all this happened, but you cannot do this no matter what coach you are, whatever, whatever level. Uh, Juwan Howard did end up getting uh, fined today, uh, $40,000, uh, five game suspension, the rest of the regular season, uh, two players from Michigan's been suspended for one game and one Wisconsin player got suspended and, uh, Wisconsin's, uh, head coach, Greg guard was fined $10,000. Um, Juwan Howard did apologize today in a statement, uh, um, talked about how it was very unacceptable, how he acted and what Rhodes was said and that he was truly sorry, and what he said in the post game, he shouldn't have said. So he did take it up for everything. But 24 hours later, it should have been taken up for the after the whole fact happened. I don't, I don't like how the situation was handled because Jawan Howard knows better. I mean, he's a professional. He knows how these things work, and the, he just didn't handle it well. He's very lucky, I think. I said yesterday when this happened that he should be suspended the rest of the year. That was my take from it. But I said, if this was probably any other coach that would have done this, like let's say if this was the coach at Middle Tennessee State that did this, he would have been fired because no one knows who that is. Or if someone, even a little big, bigger program, let's say a Power 5 program, let's say a coach from Kansas State, let's say it was him. Well, not him. Let's say a coach from TCU. Not a lot of people know who that is, and he probably would have been fired. The fact that it was Jawan Howard is probably what saved him his job. And it being the University of Michigan, I think probably saved him. Uh, so that kind of probably helped. And it did, I think, in this case. So it should have been handled better. Jawan Howard knows better. And uh, I think 
the suspension that he got was right and the fine he got was right. And we hopefully none of this ever happens again because I'm definitely not one of the people that stated all over social media that this should end the handshake lines. The handshake lines are fine. These types of things are not supposed to happen. Handshake lines should happen after every after every game. That that is fine. I people saying that to me are ignorant and saying that they you're you're adults, they should know how to act. Yeah. The handshake line's interesting. I don't I'm not gonna get up in arms about it. If, if they were to get rid of it, I I don't think it was a huge issue for me. I saw somebody I think it was Steve Lavin going on after one of the games this week and saying how important it is, how it's all about sportsmanship and all about all this and all that. And yeah, cool. But to me, if they got rid of it, I wouldn't care. That's not a huge thing to me. But I also don't think this is a call to end it. I mean, how often do you see this? Right, exactly. A couple of years. Like it's not, it shouldn't be an issue. I think it's more on the players in the situation. So to speak. But yeah, just ugly situation all around. Howard did get punished, as you mentioned. Five games, 40,000. Greg Gard wasn't suspended, which I think is interesting because I don't think he helped the situation at all. So he did, did get fined $10,000. But we'll see how this impacts these two teams going forward because Michigan's right on the bubble. They really need to win some games. Now they're without their head coach for their final five games. So how do they respond to that? Do they take that as motivation to get back into it? Because they were seeing like a top five team preseason. Yeah, and so, they have struggled tremendously yeah. this year. So it, you you would hope they respond in a positive manner, but they could also do the opposite. They could respond negatively about this because they don't have their their head coach out there for these final five games. Yep. Uh, then speaking of the end of the tournament, kind of a fun uh, moment this week. The NCAA put out their top sixteen protected seeds. All right. Essentially, if the NCAA tournament started today, who are the top 16 seeds? They, so top four in each bracket, the West, the Midwest, the South, the East. And here's how they go. The one seed across the board, or Gonzaga, Auburn, Arizona, and Kansas. The two seeds were Duke, Purdue, Baylor, Kentucky. Three seeds, Illinois, Texas Tech, Tennessee, Villanova. And the fours were Texas, UCLA, Providence, Wisconsin. Now... I'll have a couple thoughts here, and then you can kind of give me your thoughts uh, afterwards. But one of the interesting things for me was I, I thought it was interesting to see Kansas as a one seed open Kentucky, considering Kentucky went to Kansas and won by 18. And that was until I kind of looked more into it. And I didn't realize that Kansas has 10 quad one victories this year. They're a good squad. Impressive. Yeah, they're ten and three in quarter one games this year. So I, I, I understand from them as the fourth number one. There was some interesting finagling as you go down these seeds, because it, it seemed like a big priority of theirs was to at all costs avoid putting in teams from the same conference. For instance, I think Baylor was on their S curve. Baylor was their five. But they end up putting them in a different conference than Kansas, who was the fourth one. When on an curve, that's how it would have been. It would have been Kansas-Baylor 1-2 in the East. Instead, they put Kansas and Kentucky in the East, which I don't think is much better. If they want to avoid a rematch between Kansas and Baylor, 
for conferences. I mean, Kansas and Kentucky played this year too. So I don't think that really clears up that issue. But even down the ladder a little bit, uh, you see all the Big Ten teams are in different brackets. Uh, Purdue, Illinois, Wisconsin, all in different brackets. Same thing with the SEC, with Kentucky, Tennessee, Auburn, all in different brackets. Same thing with the Big 12, Texas Tech, Baylor, Kansas, Texas, all four in each of the brackets. What are your thoughts on kind of game planning the bracket that far out? Yeah, I think it's interesting because I think we knew like something like preview like this was going to come in the future with especially what the NCAA does with their college football. You know, it's kind of interesting for them to put something out like this and it gets people interested. But it gets people ready for March Madness. Um, uh, you know, like you said, there were some decent surprises. Um, I wouldn't say surprises, but interesting uh, things that they put out there. And like you said, some of the groupings were interesting with who they put together. Um, I thought it was interesting that they uh, had UCLA still in the top 16. I figured they would fail out by now, and maybe one of the other teams could have stuck in. I will uh, – I'll get to, well, I won't say that yet. I'll get that to that in a minute. Uh, Providence, I think, could finish a little higher than what they are. Uh, they did lose this week, but uh, they rebounded nice with a win over the weekend. Um Tennessee is a good team. Uh, I I will say the regions you want to stay away from the most. If you, if you're in the one seeds region, I think you're okay. If you're in the Auburn or Kentucky region, I think you feel a little bit better about it. I would not want to be in the Gonzaga Arizona region because I believe they will stay one seeds. I think those two definitely stay one seeds unless Arizona gets upset in, in the semifinals of the Pac-12. I think they could still lose the Pac-12 title and potentially keep the one seed if they went out. Um, but I, if you end up in the Arizona and Gonzaga region, I would be a little worried because I think they have the best options to come out of the regions. But granted, it is March Madness. You know, it's crazy. Um, but I would feel better if you are the Auburn or if you're in the Kansas, Kentucky, Duke region, Purdue, if they get the one, than you are the Arizona Gonzaga. The other teams, I think Wisconsin's a sneaky team. But of the 16 teams that could win the title that's not a one seed that's in there, I would say it's probably Texas Tech. Um, They are very good. They're very deep, and they have a lot to prove. I think a lot of them, their players that they have, took it very personal when Chris Beard left. And it's nothing against – I don't think they have anything against Chris Beard leaving – but I think they always thought that Chris Beard was going to retire as a Red Raider and going to have his legacy always there. And then it's not that he left Texas Tech to go to Baylor, Kansas, Kentucky. He left to go to Texas. And I think that rubbed people the wrong way. Of course, it would. And I think they're very motivated to say, hey, we're going to finish better than you in March Madness. We beat you twice this year in Texas, and we beat you at home. And I think they have a lot to prove that, hey, we can get back to a final four without you. I mean, the culture, the tradition you built still going to be great, even though you're not here anymore. So I think that's very cool to see. Uh, the only other thing I'm going to mention, the one team that will be here, that will be a top 16 team, I'm going to say it now. And I want to see if you think they can get there. Uh, of these 16, the one that's not in that I think will get in, will be Murray State. I think they have the chance to get, to get a fourth seed. And I think it would be very cool to see 
Uh, we've seen them all the way up to five in some bracketologies lately. Probably have to win out. Can't lose to Belmont and win uh, and beat them again probably in the Missouri Valley. Uh, sorry, the Ohio Valley Championship. But that wouldn't that be cool to see a mid-major get a probably a potential four seed in a in a um, in something like this? I mean, Gonzaga is the one, but let's not count Gonzaga for a second and let's talk about probably the only other chance for a mid-major would be Murray State to sneak in this top sixteen. Yeah, I, I think that'd be really cool to see Murray State make it to the top sixteen. I I don't think they'll get there. I don't think. As good as they are, I don't think they get enough love from the committee. And just in general, you often see those teams, regardless of how well they do, if you're from a small conference, unless you're Gonzaga, they seem to stall at like five, six, seven. Mm-hmm. And that kind of seems to be where they peak. Uh, a couple teams I thought was interesting that weren't on the list, because this came out before this, or on Saturday, I think. Yes. Or before they lost. Ohio State wasn't on there. That was interesting. I think they're pretty good. Uh, a, a big one, a team that's been good all year, been basically top ten all year was Houston. Yeah, I they and yeah, yeah, that was very I, surprising. I, I mean, you you mentioned Providence. They're what are they now? Twenty two and three. Like yeah. I, I'm surprised they were all down at the four line. That's kind of interesting to me. Uh, Especially in the same region as Tennessee. I feel like Providence could be ahead of Tennessee there, just in the south. But yeah, I think it was interesting that Houston didn't make it into the top six team, and they've basically been there all year. But I think the committee there is the big thing at Houston is they have no quad one wins. So I think that's kind of what's holding them back. They're 0-3 in quad one games. So I think that's a little telling that that might be why they're not in. And that might be why Providence is, I guess Providence is five and two in quad one games. So I'm not really sure what's holding Providence back to a four seed. I mean, they did have a scare Saturday, but they pulled it out on uh, Saturday. They, uh, But I guess that would have been before that game happened yeah. anyway. So uh, they lost. They did lose earlier in the week, but I don't remember who they lost to. It was they, to Villanova. Yeah, that, I mean, that's a good loss. I yeah, mean, so that's fine. <laughs> yeah. They did have the scare Saturday, yeah. but yeah, that was that would have been before. I mean, it would have been after it came out. I think I think it's kind of like the like you said, they do this kind of because how popular the college football previews were all for the last few years. Uh, I think it's very interesting that it could potentially also motivate people. Like, you know, even some of these top four teams that are maybe a two and they're like, man, you know, we should be a one. Like Kentucky can feel motivated that, oh, really, we're not a one and we beat Kansas by 18, kind of like you already mentioned. Or some teams that are not in that should be and it can motivate them anymore that, hey, we had to prove to the committee that we can be higher or something. It can motivate teams for sure, I think, is a good way to look at this as well. Because you got to think us at home are not the only ones looking at these. You know, these players and these coaches are watching these previews. Yep. Yeah, I think naturally as an athlete, you're always analyzing things around you saying, I think we're actually better than them. Correct. Especially if like you've played them like the Kentucky-Kansas. Kentucky went to Kansas and won by 18. Those players are probably sitting there going, how do we do that? And then they're ranked higher than us. So... That was something we can check in on 
I don't know if they plan on releasing anymore as we get closer, but if they do, we'll certainly bring it up. Which another topic I would be fascinating, I think would be fascinating to discuss in the future, are some of the coaching moves like the Chris Beard move. Because mm-hmm. you mentioned that with Texas Tech, I just think it's a fascinating move in conference. Your team had made it to a, a championship game. Yeah. As to what the benefits of moving there are. But as a topic for future episodes, we can discuss those kind of moves. If we kind of want to move on to our last point of the winners and losers of the week, why don't you start us off there? Yeah, uh, I'll start with the the winners. No, let's start with the winners. Yeah. Uh, I'll start with Wake Forest. They picked up uh, a win on Saturday between Notre Dame. Uh, they needed a victory. They're, um, I think CBS, uh, uh, Jerry Plum, had them the first four out. And I believe on Lenardi's last, not the newest one that came out recently, but the last one, he Wake Forest was part of their last four in. So there's kind of your very niche. They're kind of both really close there on what they think there. But Notre Dame, a projected eight seed, uh, they went in and built a 12-point lead in the first half and then walked out with a 79-74 victory. I mean, and that's a good win for them. That was a quad one win for them over Notre Dame, who's been playing extremely well. So good for Wake Forest um, to get that win. Uh, my other winner of the week is uh, a small team. Uh, let's talk about Conference USA. Uh, we don't, you know, we like to throw some fun teams in there. Uh, in North Texas, they are winning. When I mean they're winning, they are winning, winning, winning. Uh, they extend their winning streak to 12 games. Uh, they've won at the buzzer against UAB, 58-57. That was a scare for them. Uh, they're, they're the front runner to secure this USA automatic NCAA tournament bid and reach the, uh, the tournament uh, in back-to-back years for the first time in program e- uh, history. Uh, the, the big thing with them, even if they do um, – uh, falter, and let's say they do get upset in CSA, but they get to the championship. Uh, there's a lot of at-large bids open this year because some conferences are down. So they could that could be where CSA actually gets two bids because, well, this one team upset the North Texas, but North Texas has a resume to get in because they do. So you could see them um, maybe still get it even if they didn't win it, but it's better if they probably just want it just to be safe. Uh, Tyler Perry uh, is the head coach there and he is on a roll at North Texas and uh, this could potentially probably be his last year there. He's a former Baylor point guard um, and he knows how to run a program. You could see him probably get a bigger job after this year. Uh, so that's kind of interesting. Uh, my losers for the week. Uh, let's start with the one that I think has been on my list like three times as a winner, a loser. I think also as well. So I think this is the third time I've added them on either, either list. And that's LSU. They led by 15 in the, in the first half at South Carolina and looked to be finally back on the right track, extending the winning streak to four games, but they allowed the Gamecocks to come back and beat them by two. Uh, the, uh, the Tigers had 21 turnover. I mean, the Tigers forced 20 turnovers to the Gamecocks, but South Carolina still pulled out the victory. You cannot blow a 15, uh, 15 game, a 15 game, 15 uh, point lead to South Carolina. That's a not a good loss. Um, and they got a big game on Wednesday uh, coming up this week. Uh, they go to Kentucky. 
Uh, they're in danger of flowing, uh, going below 500 in SEC play. Uh, they got to play Kentucky close. And that, I mean, beating Kentucky would be a nice win for them, but they're in danger of falling to two straight losses in the SEC and falling below 500. And my other loser of the week is um, Loyola Chicago. Uh, they took a they, they took a home loss to Drake, and that's a quad two loss. I mean, it's not a bad loss, but Drake uh, they they fall to Drake's not bad, but Drake's not great either. Uh, they failed to two and four in just quad two games. Uh, they need to probably just be a little bit better there. Obviously, they entered that game as a ten a projected ten seed at CBS, and I believe a projected nine seed on ESPN. Uh, so they had an 83-76 home loss to Drake. Uh, they're 20-6, and 11-4 and four in the MVC. But if they slip up anymore, they could be the, getting to that last four in or that first four out. So these last few weeks when they uh, uh, they face Evansville or Northern Iowa or Illinois State, they do not need to slip up anymore before they head into the conference tournament. They need to probably win out. And then if they do slip up, be in that conference tournament, but hopefully they don't because uh, it's always nice to see Loyola Chicago being in the tournament as they've had some good runs in the past. Uh, Kyle, who's your uh, winners and losers of the week? Yeah, I've got a couple for each, uh, per usual. Uh, one of my losers, and this is going to be kind of a tough – a couple of my losers are tough uh, to place on this list, but I did it anyways. Uh, the first one is St. Louis. They had a tough week. They actually won again this week. They beat LaSalle. They lost at St. Bonaventure and at Davidson. And I bring up St. Louis because the A-10 is always a solid league to find a couple at-large bids. But St. Louis is a team that I think could be there if they could just win a couple big games. They're one and four in quad one games. Three and three in quad two. Like, that's just not going to get done over the A-10. And this week they lost. No, these are tough games, two road games. But they lost at St. Bonaventure and at Davidson. We should both be quality wins. It's games like that you have to win if you want a chance to play as an at-large team. Such kind of a tough week for them. They had two huge opportunities. Even the next couple of games, home versus St. Joseph's at Richmond, at Rhode Island, it goes really not going to move the bubble at all for them. So they're going to have to make a, either a deeper on the A-10 tournament or possibly win it if they want to get in. Now my second loser of the week, and again, this is kind of a tough team, but it's Virginia. They lost at Virginia Tech this week. They ended up winning at Miami, which is a good win. But losing at Virginia Tech was tough. Virginia's, I think, on the wrong side of the bubble in most brackets right now, it seems. Uh, we're right around there. And that's kind of unusual for a Virginia team. They're typically pretty high up in the bracket. And so they just they have a huge game coming up against Duke this week on Wednesday that I think is almost a must win if they want to get back on the right side of the bubble. But yeah, losing at Virginia Tech was tough. There, I think winning that game would have placed them squarely in a good spot in the bubble, but they lost that, so that's tough. And then my third loser is it's a team slash coach, <laughs> I should say, which is interesting. And that's Texas and Chris Beard. Uh, Gersh mentioned that this week they ended up losing to Texas Tech at home. Lost to Texas Tech by six. And I just think it's fascinating that Chris Beard moved teams. Now it's his first year at Texas. You can't have too high expectations. But then Texas Tech is still better. I think that's kind of ironic. 
there. And I, I just think it's, it's a bad look for Chris Beard to switch to Texas. And Texas isn't a bad team. They've been like top 20 all year. So it's not like they're a bad team to drop both teams to Texas Tech, your former school that you left. I think that's a bad look for Texas there. Going to my three winners of the week. Uh, one of them, this is a team that started out ranked this year. St. Bonaventure was ranked to start the year. I think they were like 22 or somewhere. Yeah, they were there. the back of the top 25. Yeah. And they got off to kind of a rough start. At one point, they were 12 and 7, 4 and 4 in the A10. They were not thought of as an at large at that point. They've ended up winning their last five, including three this week versus St. Louis, versus UMass, versus Duquesne. And they're firmly playing themselves back onto the bubble. So I think a huge three win week helps them there. They're now nine and four in the A10. That's big. Uh, I think they're close to getting there. One of my at large, or one of my winners is Davidson. Now, Davidson is. 22 and four on the year. You'd think they would be perfectly fine in terms of the NCAA tournament. 22 and four, 12 and two in the A10. You know, you, you'd think they're fine. But look at Bracketology and ESPN, they're projected 12 seed, even being the A10 leader. Uh, during the week, they were 61st in the net. Now, after this week, they're up to 50. So, improvement there. And they didn't really beat anybody too tough this week. They beat Duquesne and then St. Louis. But they just need to keep winning. They can't afford to slip up any of these games because even as of now, they're not really viewed that favorably by the committee. And I mean, not the committee, but by bracketology, which I think is really interesting because you would think a 21-4 or 22-4 team would be. But Exactly. Yeah. So I feel like they're kind of being disrespected there, but a big week for them. They won two games. And then my final winner is a team that I think is fascinating, at least to me. Uh, that'd be the Iowa Hawkeyes. And, and this is a team that's fascinating to me because they've been top 25 in net basically all year. They've been in and out of the rankings. They've been a good team near at the top of the Big Ten standings most of the season. But prior to this weekend, they didn't have a quad one victory. <laughs> they were 0 5 in quad one. So, how do you rank a team that's 17 and 8 in vial counts, you know, top 25 in net? I think they're top 20 now in net, but then hadn't beaten a quad one opponent. It's hard to, so, you know, it's really yeah. hard to rank. It's, I think that means they're kind of stuck on the purgatory of like the 8, 9, 10, 11 lines until they beat somebody, but they did, did just that this weekend. They went to Ohio State, and they beat Ohio State by 13. And this is Ohio State's first home loss of the year. So, huge win for Iowa. That's what they needed. Uh, the Big Ten is flush with the quad one opportunities, so they finally picked one up. Good for them. I think that's definitely going to help their resume. Not that they're in danger of missing the tournament. It was just I think winning these games helped them rise up that list. But those are my wins and losers for this week. Always fun to talk college basketball, something we'll be doing a lot more as we get closer and closer to the tournament. And yeah, send it over to Gersh to kind of round us out here. Yeah, um, 
obviously we we had a delay in this week's episode that shouldn't happen next week we just had a little mishap happen and we had to move it a day later but um hopefully next week we're talking about baseball being back that's the that's that's a big one or hopefully next by next sunday you know or by the 27th let's let's hope for a day sooner let's aim for a day sooner by the 27th they're they're ready to play some baseball and they're ready to have a deal so we can talk about maybe free agent moves or free agent locations where we think people might go once that opens back up. So I hope we can talk about that next week. Uh, obviously, the NFL probably be a little quiet unless, you know, some movement happens, any big rumor, that type of thing. Uh, NBA, probably same thing. Um, uh, you know, we're past the all-star break. We're kind of getting to that end stretch down to the middle end stretch. Cause really the all-star break in the NBA is really more 75% through the, the season yeah. than it is 50. So you don't actually realize how close you are until you actually get to the NBA all-star break. And then obviously college basketball, we're getting closer and closer to conference tournaments. We're getting closer and closer to March madness. So we'll have a lot to talk about with it. Um, but this has been another great episode. Uh, and I'm glad uh, we get to do it every every Sunday or every Monday right now for this episode. And uh, this has been another episode of The Final Whistle.